I'll invite you to turn your Bibles to two openings of Scripture this evening to begin with. uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and Psalms 103. We've been teaching for a number of weeks on the subject of angels. and Seeing what the Bible had to say about angels. And our intent is to conclude our teaching on uh, this subject this evening. And then uh, maybe next week we'll have uh, questions and answers. Uh, concerning angels. It's a big subject, and I, uh, even though we took some time with it, I'm sure I didn't leave every stone unturned or answer every question there was. So uh, we will next Wednesday night uh, uh, have a question and answer session on angels. And uh, we're mentioning that now so that you have an opportunity to get your questions together. And uh, hopefully if, you, if it would be um, in a perfect world, if you could get the questions to me before next Wednesday, then that would help. Uh, if not, I'll take them when we get here next Wednesday night. Uh, please don't uh, tell me about your angel experience and ask me if that's right. I don't know. It's, it's your experience. Is, I'm not going to know. You're going to know more about it than I will. So uh, hopefully we can keep, them, keep the questions uh, in line with what the Bible says or, or things related to that. Okay. Tonight I want to conclude what we started last uh, Wednesday evening. How to put your angels to work. We uh, got a little bit into it, um, and uh, tonight we want to finish that. We'll cover some ground that we did last week just real briefly to bring you up to speed if you weren't with us. How many were not here last Wednesday night? Okay. Well, uh, you're going to get more out of this if you heard what was said before. But as I said, we'll hit the high spots and try to cover some, uh, some of the ground that we did last Wednesday night. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. The writer of the book of Hebrews, I believe it was Paul. Uh, said by the Holy Ghost, speaking of the angels, proving that Jesus is greater than anything in Judaism. The first thing that he identifies is that Jesus was greater than the angels. The Jews hold the angels in a very, very specifically high place of, of uh, uh, prominence in, uh, in their beliefs and in their history and so forth. A lot of that because of the things that we see angels did and accomplished in the Old Testament the way that God used them. So Paul, in making the point about Jesus being greater than the angels, says in verse 14, Are they, speaking of the angels, not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? And the first thing I want you to notice, it does not say he ministers to those. It says it ministers for those. Another translation says they are spirit servants sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation. That's talking about us, folks. The Bible says, if you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs, according to the promise. Heirs of salvation, in other words. Now, in Psalm 103, verse 20, we looked at this some weeks ago, and I think it bears repetition because this is really the bottom line of everything regarding angels that we have information on in the Bible. Psalm 103, verse 20, it says, Bless the Lord, ye his angels, that excel in strength. The margin of my Bible says mighty in strength. That do his commandments hearkening unto the voice of his word. That's interesting that the Bible doesn't say that they hearken unto his word. It says they do his commandments. But it doesn't say they hearken unto his word. It says they hearken unto the voice of his word. Now those are two different things. The word of God and the voice of his word are two different things. The word is forever settled in heaven. It's what God has decreed. It's what God has declared. But they're looking to hearken or give attention to or uh, be placed on assignment by, if you'll allow me the liberty to, to say it that way. They're hearkening, listening to, or being put on assignment by the voice of his word. Well, where are they going to hear the voice of God's word? Through you. They're looking to hear you speak the word of God, and that's one thing that puts them 
at work. Actually, folks, um, I don't want to. I don't want to make things complicated. Last week, I talked about three different ways that you can put your angels to work, and I'll go through, over those real quickly uh, here again. The first way has three different parts. I don't know how to divide them, so I just put them out there equally. Speaking the word, obeying the word, and then commissioning the angels to assignment or putting them to work. The second way that you can put your angels to work is by prayer. The third way you can put your angels to work is by worship, praise or worship. Now, as I said, I don't want to make things complicated. And I don't want people to, to look at those three steps and say, and say okay, step one, two, three. Let's, you've got to make sure we do everything right here. All three steps come down to one thing, and that is the word of God. So really, for the sake of teaching, I'm trying to divide them up so that we can look at specific aspects of what the Bible says. But it really comes down to one thing, and that is what Psalm 103 verse 20 says. They're hearkening under the voice of his word. In other words, when you speak the word of God, and those three different ways are just different ways that you can speak and or act on the word of God. So that's what it comes down to with angels. They're looking to hear God's word. They're not looking to hear from you. They're looking to hear from you if you speak God's word. Now, with that in mind, turn back with me to Exodus chapter 23. I'll show you what I mean by that. They don't just hearken to your word. They hearken to our voice when we speak God's word. Exodus chapter 23, the children of Israel have come out of bondage in Egypt the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 10 that, uh, that them passing over the Red Sea, you remember the story, how that the ten plagues came against uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Finally, Pharaoh relented and said, okay, I'll let you go. Moses takes the children of Israel and they start heading for the promised land. Now they get to the Red Sea and uh, the people cry out because of the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh is mad because his son has died in this uh, last plague as well. And so he decides, what am I doing letting these people go? I need to kill these people. Now, after what he's just seen their God do in defending them, that's probably not a real smart choice, but that's what he decides to do anyway. So he comes bearing down on them. They're trapped, mountains on one side, mountains on the other side, Red Sea behind them. And, and so it looks like the perfect place to attack from a military standpoint. But God speaks to Moses, or actually Moses cries out to God and says, uh, to, says to the people, don't be afraid, God will uh, take care of us, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. Then he turns around to God and God says, what are you crying out to me for? Turn around, stretch your rod out over the sea and divide the, divide the sea. So he does. Israel goes over on dry ground. Pharaoh chases in after him a little bit later. And the waters come back together and, and his, he and his armies are destroyed. The greatest superpower, the greatest military force on the face of the earth is destroyed. And Israel never has to fire a shot. They never have to throw a spear. Never has to pull out a sword. Never has to do anything. God took care of them. On the other side of the Red Sea. It's when they start heading for the promised land. They get to the Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai is where they are in Exodus chapter 23. God has given them the Ten Commandments. He's given them different laws. He's told them different instruction. Remember, their whole reason for being brought out of Egypt is to go to the promised land. Now, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, about verse 30 through 32, somewhere around there, it says that them passing through the Red Sea, Israel passing through the Red Sea, was a type of us being baptized into Christ. They were baptized unto Moses. The scripture says, we're baptized unto Christ. Now, what does that mean? That means just as Moses was their natural deliverer, Jesus is our spiritual deliverer. So it's telling us everything that happens in the Old Testament is a type or a shadow. That means it's an example of something that belongs to us spiritually. And that example 
of them passing through the Red Sea is the, is the example or illustration of salvation. When we accept Jesus as the Lord of our lives, that is what being delivered from the bondage of Egypt and the destruction of their enemies and his power signified. But now they're on the other side of the Red Sea. Now they're headed toward the promised land. Now they're headed toward the blessings that God said that he had provided for them. Now the promised land is a type of what we have as a result of being Christians. It's a type of the baptism of the Holy Ghost. It's a type of the healing that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. It's a type of the chastisement of our peace that he took upon himself. That means material provision, well-being in every area. It's a type of all the blessings that belong to us as New Testament Christians. Now, that's not identified as part of the, the crossing the Red Sea experience. God separates those because he wants us to know something very, very specific and very, very important. And that is, it's not just about getting saved, meaning having your sins forgiven. The church world thinks of sins being forgiven as uh, that's what Jesus came to the earth to do. Well, actually, that's not true. I don't mean to minimize it. And if you think that I'm speaking blasphemous, stick with me for a minute. I'll, I'll show that I'm not. The forgiveness of sins was not the point. The point was the destruction of spiritual death. Sins are the entrance for spiritual death, but death is what passed passed upon all men because of Adam and Eve's transgression. So Jesus came to deal once and for all with spiritual death. Now, in dealing with spiritual death, that means he accomplished several things. That means he remitted, not forgave, he remitted your sins. Remission means the removal. Forgiveness means God just looked away or he just covered them up. The Christian doesn't have his sins forgiven. The Christian's sins are remitted. So you start talking to God about things that you did before you got saved. He doesn't know what you're talking about. He removed those. Now, after we're saved, if we fall out of, walk out of, uh, take a step out of love, if we fail to walk in the new commandment of love, as the scripture says, is the only commandment we have as Christians, then there's forgiveness available to us. Forgiveness. In other words, our sins are remitted. We have a relationship with God. We're restored to relationship with God and fellowship with God. But that fellowship can be broken. Not the relationship, but the fellowship can be broken through sin. If that happens, First John 1, 9 says, if we just simply confess that we sinned, then God's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, the unrighteous action, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The relationship is never broken. Your relationship with God cannot be broken except with one exception, and that's with great difficulty, and that's Hebrews chapter 6. And if you want to stay in the family of God, don't even worry about that. Most Christians never mature enough to to fall out of that place anyway, so it's really a non-issue in most cases. But he restored us to fellowship and right standing with him. But... On the other side of that restoration of right standing, that restoration of uh, creation of fellowship and restoration of fellowship, creation of relationship and restoration of fellowship. On the other side of that, there are blessings that God wants you to have. Those are called the blessings of Abraham. Now, with that in mind, this is what God said about taking hold of those blessings of Abraham. Exodus chapter 23, verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way. That means to protect you. Number one, and two, second, to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Now, for them, it was, a, it was a geographic territory. It was a promised land. There were physical boundaries, geographic boundaries for their promised land blessing. It's a type of all the things that Jesus purchased for us on the cross. Healing, 
material provision, peace, all the things that belong to us as a result of Jesus paying the price once and for all and destroying the power of death once and for all. And notice the Bible says that in the Old Testament, God commissioned an angel to bring his people into those blessings. Now, it's interesting to me that he didn't commission an angel to bring them into salvation or the type of salvation. He didn't commission an angel. He didn't tell Moses before the Red Sea, stretch your rod out and an angel will do the work. No, he said, Moses, you do something. Why? Because salvation depends on the will of the individual. But once you're in the family, which is what salvation signifies, once you're in the family, God's got supernatural help for you. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, that's Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. But tell me how God's changed from the Old Testament to the New. My Bible says very specifically in several different places, in several different ways, something to this effect. I am God, I change not. So if he wanted for his servants in the Old Testament, and that's what they were. If he wanted for his servants in the Old Testament, supernatural, angelic help to bring them into the blessings that he promised their, their father Abraham. Why would he want less for us when we're Abraham's seed through Christ? We're sons. They were servants. You're going to tell me that God made a better provision for them as servants than he makes for his own children? Do you see my point? There is absolutely no reason for us to think that the work of angels has changed. We just read in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14. Are they, the angels, not all ministering spirits, spirits, servants, sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? Well, what are they ministering for, ministering on our behalf to do? To bring us into the blessings of Abraham. Same work. Same operation. So he says, behold... Talking to Moses on behalf of the people of, of Israel. Behold, I sent an angel before thee to keep thee in the way, to protect you. Thank God they still protect us. And secondly, to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. We could say blessings. For them it was a land, it was a territory, but for us it's blessings. The blessings which I have prepared. How did he prepare them? He prepared them for them through the promise he gave to Abraham. He prepared them for us by fulfilling the promise he made to Abraham through the sacrifice of Jesus, his son. Verse 21, beware of him. Now, that doesn't mean be afraid. That means give respect unto him. And obey his voice. Now, that's interesting. Most Christians don't know that there is an angel assigned to bring them into the blessings of God, so they wouldn't know how to obey his voice. How do we do this? Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not. Please notice the word provoke. Provoke him not. For he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Now, there are times in the Old Testament where the angel of the Lord is spoken of, and it must be Jesus. There's no other explanation other than Jesus. A pre-incarnate appearance or visitation of Jesus. But this can't be him. Because Jesus is all about pardoning transgressions. Jesus is all about the remission of sins. Here it says the angel will not bargain with you. There's no repentance from what you take action concerning, for the action you take concerning the angels. There's no repentance for that. In other words, you better be sure what you're doing. You better have respect unto him. You better make sure that you are obeying his voice because if you decide not to, there's no turning back from it. Sounds pretty important, doesn't it? Beware of him, obey his voice. 
Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak. Now get that. Obeying his voice is obeying the word of God. Now we know how to obey the voice of the angel. You do what the Bible says. But if you'll obey his voice and do what I speak, do all that I speak, then, everybody say then. Notice it's conditional. Then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies and an adversary unto my adversary, thine adversaries. Now, you want me to tell you why so many Christians live defeated lives? Because they don't have angelic help against their enemies. Why? Because they provoke their angels. The Bible is saying very specifically that God gives you supernatural help, angelic help, to take hold of all the things that Jesus provided for you. That means that there is angelic help to take hold of healing. That means there's angelic help for you to prosper in this life. Those are the three things that the Bible says Jesus died on the cross for specifically. He was wounded for our transgressions. This is Isaiah 53, 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Both of those have to do with sins. One means the sins of Adam. The other means your individual sins. Secondly, it says the chastisement of our peace was upon him. That word peace is translated prosperity in many places in the Old Testament. In other words, he paid the price or the punishment for the material curse, the physical curse that came upon mankind Where after Adam and Eve sinned, he said, from this point forward, the earth is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. And the earth will produce for you by the sweat of your brow. Jesus paid that price. Didn't mean there aren't any thorns and thistles anymore. It means you can overcome them because you are in him. It means you can expect that whatever you put your hand to will prosper. Thirdly, it says, and with his stripes, you were healed. That's physical healing. Now, the Bible says, same verse of scripture says that Jesus... Provided for all three of those things on the cross at the same time. So we have angelic help in those areas. If we don't provoke the angel. Verse 23. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites and the Hivites, Hivites and the Jebusites. And I will cut them off. Now notice it didn't say and I will make your enemies disappear. It says, my angel will bring you before your enemy so that you can win the victory. Amen? Okay, so the issue is, how do we not provoke the angel? Without going into detail, folks, Numbers chapter 13 and chapter 14 are the perfect example of provoking the angel. They come just a very short time, just a few short years after this point in time in Exodus 23 to Numbers chapter 13 where they're at the edge of the promised land. They send the 12 spies into the promised land. Moses sends 12 spies in to spy out the land. They're gone for 40 days. They come back with the fruit of the land. It's a good land. It's flowing with milk and honey, their report is. It's just like God says, but there are people in there. And these people have cities with big walls around them. And they've got big armies. And they look really strong, and we're, we're no match for them militarily. They're more than us, and they're stronger than us. I guess they've forgotten what God did to the Egyptians. I don't know why that didn't factor into their thinking. But they said, Joshua, or Caleb rather, Caleb and Joshua were two of the 12 spies. They stayed true to what God said. Caleb spoke up and said, we are well able to do it. God's on our side. We can go take this land. And the 10 rose up and said, no, we can't do it. We can't do it. We're in their sight 
as grasshoppers. Well, that wasn't true, but that's the way they saw themselves. They said, we're like grasshoppers in their sight, and we can't get the job done. Now, Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 8 says that's the day of provocation. It says, harden not your hearts as in the time of provocation or as in the provocation. When your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my works for 40 years. In other words, speaking against God's word. Remember, the angels are listening for the voice of his word. They're listening for you to agree with what the Bible says. And if you contradict what the Bible says, that's what the Bible identifies and defines as provoking the angel. If the Bible says you're healed and you you say you're not, the angels fold their wings and sit back. You're on your own. As a result of what happened in Numbers chapter 13, these children of Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Not because it was the will of God. Please notice that. It's not because it was the will of God. God's already said, I've got an angel that will bring you into the promised land. But they bypassed their supernatural help, their divine help, and spent 40 years outside the will of God because they spoke against what God's word says. That's how you provoke your angel. So, folks, as I said, we can define this thing any way we want to. I've come up with three different ways to put your angels to work. There's one way to put your angel to work, and that's by speaking the word. Speaking the word. Now, I want you to turn with me over to Joshua chapter 5. We don't want to spend a lot of time here, but I think it bears uh, a little bit of time to cover this. In Joshua chapter 5, this is 40 years after Numbers chapter 13. And Joshua is the leader of the children of Israel now, and they're come, they've come back around to where the promised land is. This time they're going in. God's spoken to Joshua. He's given them instruction about how to do it. And just before they go over the Jordan River, uh, and the first city next to the Jordan River is the city of Jericho. That's the one everybody was afraid of 40 years ago because it's got these giant walls around it. Notice what happens. Joshua. uh, Where do we want to start? Um, Verse 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Art thou for us or for our adversaries? Now, obviously, he recognizes that this is not just some human. He recognizes that this is some angelic or divine being. His question is, are you on our side or are you against us? He answers and says... Nay, but as the captain, captain, the word captain is the word prince, of the host of the Lord am I now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thy standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, folks, this guy's got to be Jesus. Because no angel will let you worship him. Joshua falls down to worship, and the angel does not say, stand up, worship the Lord. So this has got to be Jesus. But who does Jesus identify himself as? The captain or the prince of the host. Host is a reference to heavenly angels and their armies and his army. In other words, he's saying, I'm the captain of the army, the angel army. I'm the prince. I'm the leader. I'm the ruler of the angel army. Now, why in the world would God appear? Would Jesus appear before jo- unto Joshua just before he goes into uh, to, uh, the land of Canaan where he's going to fight the biggest fight he ever fights with the walls of Jericho surrounding the city and all that kind of stuff? Why would Jesus appear and say, I'm the one that controls the angel armies? If unless the angel armies are going to have something to do with the battle he's going to be in. 
Otherwise, why identify yourself that way? There's a lot of ways that Jesus could identify himself. He could identify himself as, I'm the one that made the covenant with Abraham. I'm the one that delivered you from the bondage of Egypt. A lot of ways Jesus could have identified himself. He could have identified himself as the creator of heaven and earth. I mean, if he's trying to make the point that I am big and I'm strong and I'm capable, there's a lot of ways for him to do it other than the way he did. Agreed? But he identifies himself as captain or prince or leader or ruler of the angel armies. That's what heavenly host, that's what host means. It means the angel armies. Look up the word and it means armies. Why did he do that? Unless the angels are going to have something to do with winning the battle. Now, you remember how they took the city of Jericho. They took the city of Jericho by walking around it one time each day for six days. The seventh day, they went around seven times. And at the end of the seventh time, they blew the trumpet and the walls fell down flat. But there's a piece there that a lot of times people overlook. For those seven days before they ever started marching around, Joshua had commanded the people, you can't say a word. He remembers 40 years ago when he and Caleb were the only ones of the 12 spies that said, we can take this land. Ten of them rose up and said, no, we can't do it. He remembers 10 of those spies spoke against the word of God and convinced the rest of the people of Israel, the older generation there that was with them, to join in with them saying, yeah, we can't do it. We can't do it. He knows if he lets these people talk, there's no telling what's going to happen. So what's his one commandment? Shut up. Not just while we're walking around the walls, but for seven days. When you can talk again, it's when I blow the trumpet. Until then, not a word. They go, they go around the city the first day, come back to the campfire at night. They're looking at each other and their eyes are going. <laughs> They're probably trying to wink at each other saying, have you ever seen a wall like that? But they can't say a word. Second day, the same thing. Third day, the same thing. By the fourth day, this thing looks twice as big as it did the first day. By the sixth day, they're, they're running a rut around this thing. It doesn't look smaller to them. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. Now, remember what, what uh, uh, Exodus 23 says. God told them, I'm sending an angel before you to take you before your enemies. That's what's happening here. They are facing their enemies, but they can't say a word. This is why part of the first way to put your angels to work is to obey. It's not always talk. Sometimes it's shut up and just do. That's what worked for Joshua. Not talking, but just acting in line with what God told them to do. That was sufficient. So many times people take this confession stuff and they try to make a ritual out of it. And they think, if I just say it enough, it's going to work. Folks, it's not a matter of how many times you say it. It's saying it once from your heart. You can say it a million times, and it may take a million times for it to dawn on you that, hey, wait a minute, this is really true. But once it dawns on you that this is real, this is God's word, it has to come to pass. Then you say it from your heart. It only takes once. So confession has two parts. One is to put it into your heart. The other is for it to come out of your heart. The angel is hearkening unto the voice of the Lord, the voice of the word of God, meaning he's waiting for it to come from your heart. And there's only one way that can happen, and that's through meditation. Meditation is speaking the word, speaking the word of God to yourself. It causes it to take root on the inside of you. Day seven comes around. They go around seven times. People on the inside of the city don't know what's going on. What is with these people? Now, we already know from Rahab, two spies have gone in before they ever went into the promised land the second time. They come back and say that Rahab told them 
We've been afraid of you guys for 40 years. We can't understand why you turned around 40 years ago. Because we heard of what God did for, the, for youth at the Red Sea with the Egyptians. So the people that 40 years ago, the 10 spies said, looked at us like grasshoppers, were looking at them and they were shaking in their boots. wonder where they got that grasshopper stuff. Same place we do. It's what the devil tells us, but he's a liar. He lied to them just like he lies to us. So, seventh day, Joshua and, his, and the, the army that he's got goes around seven times. At the end of the seventh time, he blows the trumpet. When he blows the trumpet, the walls fall down flat. King James says flat. Another translation says in their place. Here's what that means. That means the earth opened up and the walls fell down to where they were even with the ground. Historians and archaeologists tell us the walls were 100 feet high. That's a 10-story building. But they were 50 feet deep. So if they fell down on the ground, they're still going to be 50 feet high. That's still too big for them to get over. So where it says they fell down flat, it means they fell down even or level with the earth. Now, how in the world did that happen? Well, remember, Jesus has identified himself before any of this took place as the captain of the host. You think the angels had anything to do with that? You think maybe the angels started shaking those walls? The angels had something to do with it. Jesus said he was the captain of the host. Now, I don't know. I'm not pretending to say here's how it happened or whatever, but there are certainly some interesting things to consider, aren't there? Jesus seems to indicate that the angels are going to have a hand in the victory. I don't know what exactly that was, but it sure could have had something to do with those walls coming down, couldn't it? We looked at Genesis chapter 24 last week, where Abraham is looking for a, uh, a wife for his son Isaac. And he sends out the servant from his house. And he tells him, go back to the land that I came from. I want to get somebody from my kinsman to be my son's wife. And so the, the servant says, well, okay, but should I take Isaac with me? You know what this blind dating stuff is like. Should I take Isaac with me? And he said, don't you even think about taking Isaac. He's not leaving here. He's staying here. And then Abraham says this. He said, but my angel will go forth. Or not, he doesn't say my angel. He says an angel will go forth, and he'll prepare the way for you. Now, how in the world did Abraham have the idea that he could command the angels? Where did he get that notion? You can't find anywhere where God said, Abraham, I'm making a covenant with you, and the angels are at your disposal. But we, we knew, do know certain things. We know, number one, he did have a covenant with God. That covenant with God is the same covenant that you have with God, only fulfilled by the work of Jesus on the cross. There's not two covenants. There's not the Abrahamic covenant and now the new covenant. The new covenant is just the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled. That's why you have the blessings of Abraham as a part of the covenant we have. If there was a new covenant, it wouldn't be the blessings of Abraham. It would be the blessings that belong to us through Jesus. But it says it's the blessings of Abraham, meaning it's the fulfillment of the old covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. I'm not talking about the law. I'm not talking about the law of Moses, not talking about any of that stuff. That was just instructions about the, the Abrahamic covenant. You've got the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That's why the blessings of Abraham are ours. That means whatever Abraham could do under his covenant, you can do under yours. You've got the same rights. You've got the same privileges. Abraham sent an angel out to get the job done. That's why I mentioned as part of the first way to put your angels to work, send them forth. I told the story about how Brother Hagin, uh, uh, the Lord appeared to Brother Hagin and taught him some things about finances. 
And uh, Brother Hagin was having a real hard time with finances. Things weren't working the way that he uh, thought they would. His family wasn't being taken care of while he was ministering on the road. And in his day, nobody was ministering on the road the way he was. He was going around teaching in the churches. The only people that were traveling ministers in his day were uh, evangelists. And that's not the kind of ministry that God gave him. And so there were times where it was really tough. And he needed $150 a week just to get everything taken care of. And the Lord appeared to him and while he was praying about finances and talked to him about some things. And then he, he, Brother Hagin asked him, he said, Lord, this thing about finances, he said, I see in your word that it says if I'm willing and obedient, I'll eat to go to the land. And the Lord said, yeah, well, let me, let me tell you how to handle finances. And so Brother Hagin's ears perked up. Yes, sir. I want to know that. He said, first of all, quit praying about finances. Quit praying about money. Well, if you're not going to pray about money, what are you going to do? I mean, if we need money, we're not supposed to pray for it? Brother Hagin said that the Lord stopped talking, and he's, he's zeroing in. His, his mind's going just like yours and mine would. Well, what am I supposed to do? And, then, and, and he asked that question. He said, well, Lord, what am I supposed to do if I'm not supposed to pray for money? He said, claim the money you need. He said, the money you need is not in heaven. There's no reason to pray to me for it. The money you need is down here on the earth. So claim what you need. Say, I claim $150 this week. Second thing, he said, command Satan to take your hand, his hands off your money. Now, you can't claim, you can't tell the devil to take his hands off everybody's money or all money. But the money you need and the money you claim, you can tell him to take the hand, his hands off that. So he said, first, claim the money that you need. Second, tell the devil to take his hands off your money. Third, send the angels forth to bring it forward. Bring it in. Brother Hagin stopped again. He said, what do you mean, Lord? He said, send the angels out. Say, go, ministering spirits, and cause the money to come. Well, how can I do that? He said, don't you know what Hebrews 1.14 says? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who shall be heirs of salvation? He said, Brother Hagin said, well, no, I, I, I've always read that and minister too. I, I didn't know that said four. And he said, no, it says four. You look it up. He did. It does. Well, if the angels are sent to minister for us, how are they going to get to work? By you taking the word of God, claiming what the Bible says is yours, telling the devil to take his hands off it because the money's down here, folks. God doesn't have any money. If he sent money down from heaven, it'd be counterfeit. He's not a counterfeiter. The money you need is here. Now, you know as well as I do that, that the devil influences people in evil ways where money is concerned. Well, is the devil greater than the angels? Is the devil greater than angels that are working on behalf of God's commandment? Can't the, can't the angels influence money to come to you? Just like the devil's trying to influence people to, to, to take money from you? Don't you think that's possible? Well, sure it is. That's why the first way comes down to those three things. I wanted to identify specifically those three things. Speak the word, obey the word, send your angels forth. That can be any or all of those. It can be one of those. Or it can be a combination of those depending on the situation. And you see a scriptural example for each one. Now... Let's talk about some others. The second way is by prayer. Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12 tells us about Peter being thrown into prison. We looked at this before, beginning in verse 1. Now about that time Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church. And he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to take Peter also. 
These were the days of the unleavened bread. And when he had apprehended him, Peter, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers. That's 16 soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. Peter, therefore, was kept in prison, but prayer. Can you see that? But prayer. Now, the implication is that maybe James could have been saved, too. No difference between James and Peter except prayer. Peter, therefore, was put in prison or kept in prison, but prayer was made without ceasing of, of the church unto God for him. Now, what happens? The angel shows up, wakes him up, tells him to put his stuff on and takes him outside the gates, walks him through the walls, walks him through the I'm the, sorry, not the walls. He walks him through the, the gates, opens the opens the prison doors, walks him to the outside of the prison, gets him outside into the city and disappears. So notice what prayer did. Prayer caused an angel to, to be put to work. Turn with me back to Second uh, Chronicles chapter 32, I believe it is. Second Chronicles chapter 32. We won't take time to go through this whole story, but this is a great, great story. The thing that makes this so great... Is that it tells about one of the enemies of uh, Israel. Sennacherib was the, the king. The enemy king's uh, name. He was the king of the Assyrians. And, uh, and he's. Uh, well he's coming against uh, Israel. He's threatened military action. But he hasn't taken any yet. But he's got an army that Israel knows they can't defeat. And he's taken over other, other countries. And other armies. And, and that kind of stuff. And so he comes in. Hoping to, to get, capture Israel without a fight. And so he sends one of his captains, one of his chief guys, whoever he is, to make this big, long speech to Israel to dishearten them. It's a perfect example of how the devil works against us. Because he, he stands in this loud, this open place and speaks with this loud voice. And he says, you know your army's no might for us. You know that Sennacherib has taken over this country and over that country. And he's captured their, their armies and their people. And he's enslaved them and all this kind of stuff. And if you try to fight against us, it's really going to go bad for you. He said, but if you surrender to us, then it'll be easier for you. And then he goes so far as to say, now, what do you think you're going to trust in? He even knows. That Hezekiah the king is trusting in God. He knows that Isaiah the prophet is on his side as well. And speaks for God. And he says now Hezekiah and Isaiah are going to tell you to trust in the Lord. But did the gods of these other countries save them? They had gods just like you've got gods. And they prayed to their gods and we overtook them and we defeated them and we killed a lot of their people and we captured them too. Don't listen to Hezekiah. Don't listen to Isaiah. They're leading you astray. They don't care about you. They don't care if you're killed. They just want you to protect them. He goes through this whole big long speech. And as a result, at the end of all this stuff, it says, verse 20. And for this cause, Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried unto heaven. And the Lord sent an angel. I want you to get this. Hold your finger here and turn with me over to Isaiah 37. Notice how it low-keys this 
story in Second Chronicles chapter 32. It says, and for this cause, verse 20, for this cause, Hezekiah, the king and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, pride and cried and uh, prayed and cried to heaven. And the Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and captains in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he returned with shame of face to his own land. And when he was coming to the house of his God, they that came forth of his own bowels slew him and there slew him there with the sword. Now that sounds like God sent an angel and something happened to cause this guy to go back home. Isaiah 37 tells you what happened. Let's start reading in verse, uh, oh, we don't want to read the whole thing. Verse 21, then we'll skip over a little bit. Then Isaiah, the son of Amos, sent unto Hezekiah, saying, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, Whereas thou hast prayed to me against Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him, etc., etc. Then um, verse 34. Verse 34. Verse 33, therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, the same, by the same shall he return, and shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake and for my servants David's sake. Verse 36, then the angel of the Lord went forth and smote the camp of the Assyrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. That's 185,000 people. One angel takes care of 185,000 soldiers. Now, folks, the Bible says that as the church, the people of God in, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says we're called to an innumerable company of angels. Now, I don't know what innumerable means other than more than you count. Now, if one can kill 185,000 men in a night, what exactly are we worried about? So he went into the camp of the Syrians. One angel went into the camp of the Syrians and killed a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. And when they arose early in the morning, so that it all happened overnight, behold, they were all dead corpses. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and went and returned. I guess he did depart. I wonder if he made a big speech on his way out. So he departed and went and returned and dwelt at Nineveh. And it tells us how his sons killed him. He went back to his home, went into the temple of his gods, and his sons killed him. Same story, same event. But notice what the result was. They prayed and the Lord sent an angel to defeat their enemies. So we can clearly see, we can use other examples as well, but we can clearly see that praying puts your angels to work. But now we're going to have to stop there and talk about that for a minute. Not just any kind of prayer works. Because the angels hearken unto the voice of the word of God. So if you're not praying the word, the angels don't have anything to listen to from you. They don't have any assignments given to them. In fact, if you're praying contrary to the word, they're folding their wings and standing by and saying, well, I guess they're going to handle this on their own. But that's not what Hezekiah did. And as a result, Isaiah speaks on behalf of God and says, here's what God is saying to you. God is saying Sennacherib won't come into the city. He'll go back the same way that he came. None of his threats will come to pass. And the angel kills 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers in a night. Now, folks, keep that in mind and turn back with me to Second Chronicles chapter 20. This brings us to the third way that you put your angels to work. And I want you to notice the similarities here. Now, I, uh, I've got to be, um, in the interest of full disclosure, I think is the term that people use. 
you may conclude, after I share this last way with you, you may conclude that I'm building something on my own idea. And I, I can't exactly argue with you because I don't have a scripture that says worship puts the angels to work. But we do have similarities in different stories. It would seem to me that God would work similarly in similar situations as far as the angels are concerned. I'm not sure exactly how it works, and I don't claim to know all, have all the answers. But if God has assigned angels to two things that we see in Exodus chapter 23, to protect his people and to bring us into the blessings that belong to us, the place that he's prepared for us, those are the blessings of Abraham. For them, it was the promised land, the land of Israel. If God has commissioned the angels to do those two things, those two things are still the angel's job in the New Testament just as much as they were in the Old Testament. Because God hadn't changed. His desire for his people hadn't changed. His plan hasn't changed. So what changes? Are you with me so far? All right, with that in mind, let's look at Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 1. It came to pass after this also that the children of Moab and the children of Ammon and with them others beside the Ammonites came against Jehoshaphat to battle. Then there came some that told Jehoshaphat, saying, There comes a great multitude against thee from beyond the sea, on this side Syria, and behold, they be at Hazazon, uh, Hazazon Tamar, which is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat feared and set himself to seek the Lord and proclaim, proclaimed a fast throughout all Judea, Judah. And Judah gathered themselves together to ask help of the Lord. Even out of all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So you understand that asking help and seeking means praying, right? They're fasting, they're praying. They're, they're trying to find out, okay, God, what do we do about this? And Jehoshaphat stood in the congregation of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, here is his prayer. O Lord God of our fathers, art not thou God in heaven? And rulest thou not over kingdoms, all the kingdoms of the heathen? And in thy hand is there not power and might, so that there is none able to withstand thee? Where it says rules over all the kingdoms of the heathen, it doesn't mean God's in control. It means God is stronger than. Art not thou our, art not, art not thou our God? Verse 7, who did drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel. That's in Joshua's day. And gave it to thy seed to the seed of Abraham, thy friend, forever. Now, folks, if God gave the land of Israel to the the seed of Abraham forever, then aren't the blessings of Abraham that were promised and accomplished by Jesus ours forever too? Would there be exceptions to when those things would belong to us? Or do they always belong to us? They'd always belong to us. It's eternal. And they dwelt, verse 8, and they dwelt therein and have built thee a sanctuary therein. That's Solomon's day for thy name, saying, if when evil comes, this is one part of the prayer that they prayed when they dedicated the temple. If when evil comes upon us as with the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, if we stand before this house and in thy presence, for your name is in this house, and cry unto thee in our affliction, then thou wilt hear and help. He's reminding God, Lord, remember what we prayed before? We prayed before when we dedicated this thing that if we came before this house when we were in trouble, you would hear us and help us. That sounds like they've got a guarantee for the ear of God. Kind of like what Jesus said, if you ask in his name, he'll give it to you. Do they have a better guarantee than we do? Certainly not. Our guarantee is even better than theirs. Verse 10, and now, 
Behold, the children of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom thou would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, but they turned from them and destroyed them not. Behold, I say, how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession. Now, folks, I love this. This is a prayer that works. Notice he's talked about how, started off talking about how big God is. Secondly, talking about what God has said and what he has delivered to his children through the promise he made to Abraham. Third, the prayer that we prayed before about getting your help when we're in trouble. And fourth, now saying, Lord, look at what our enemies are come to do. And what they're after is to cast us out of your possession. Folks, you need to understand something. Righteousness is God's possession given to you. Healing is God's possession given to you. Prosperity is God's possession given to you, purchased by Jesus and his righteous blood. So when the devil tries to bring sickness against you, he's not trying to take sickness from you. He's trying to cast you out of God's possession. When the devil's trying to break you, bankrupt you, he's trying to cast you out of God's possession. That's what this prayer means. So what I want you to get first and foremost is they are praying the word of God. That's the kind of prayer that works. Behold, I say how they reward us to come to cast us out of thy possession, which thou hast given us to inherit. O our God, wilt thou not judge them? For we have no might against this great company that comes against us. Neither know we what to do, but our eyes are upon thee. And all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives and their children. Then upon Jehaziel, the uh, somebody came the spirit of the Lord in the midst of the congregation. And he said, hearken ye all Judah and ye inhabitants of Jerusalem and thou King Jehoshaphat. Thus saith the Lord unto you, be not afraid nor dismayed by reason of this great multitude for the battle is your, not yours, but God's tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they come up by a certain place. You shall find them at the end of the brook before the wilderness of Jeruel. You shall not need to fight in this battle. Set yourselves, stand you still, and see the salvation of the Lord with you. O Judah and Jerusalem, fear not, nor be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them, for the Lord will be with you. That's not a bad answer to prayer. But there's a problem. Tomorrow is still ahead. We've got the word of God on it. We've got God's promise. You won't even have to fight. God will deliver you. God will take care of it. But tomorrow still comes. And folks, you know as well as I do, when they wake up in the morning, they're not as excited and goose pimpled as they were when the prophet was saying, here's the word of the Lord unto you. You know that from your own experience. You can come to church and get all fired up about what the Bible says is yours, and then Monday morning comes around. It's like, oh, dear Lord, I've still got the same deadline I had yesterday. Right? What are they going to do? Well, now in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 32 and Isaiah 37, they prayed and God sent an angel and killed the armies. What's he going to do now? Well, they prayed just like Hezekiah did. Is God any different in chapter 20 than he is in chapter 32? Do the angels, are they on break in chapter 20? But they come off a break and now they're working again in chapter 32? Is there any reason for us to think that God would do less for them in chapter 20 than he did for them in chapter 32? Do you see my point? Well, what's going to activate God fulfilling his promise? Notice what it says, verse 20. And they rose early in the morning and went forth into the wilderness of Tekoa. And as they stood forth, stood uh, and as, I'm sorry. And as they went forth, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Hear me, O Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Believe in the Lord your God. So shall you be established. Believe as prophets, so shall you prosper. Folks, that's good advice for every situation. Believe the word. Literally, believe the word of God. 
How do you do that? That's the real question, isn't it? Everybody knows they're supposed to believe. They might not know what they're supposed to believe. They might not know how to, how to believe. But everybody knows you're supposed to believe. How do you do that? Jehoshaphat shows us. When he had consulted with the people, verse 21, he appointed singers unto the Lord that they should praise the beauty of holiness. And as they went out before the army, that means he puts the praise team out in front of the military. This praising God stuff sounds real good until you go out to battle and you're out front. And as they went out before or in front of the army and to say, praise the Lord for his mercy endures forever. And when they began to sing and to praise, the Lord said ambushments. Against the children of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir when they were come against Judah. And they were smitten for the children of Ammon and Moab stood up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir. Utterly to slay and to destroy them. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, everyone's helped to destroy one another. And when Judah came toward the watchtower in the wilderness, they looked unto the multitude. And behold, they were dead bodies fallen to the earth and none escaped. Now folks, you can think what you want to about this. But I'm pretty well convinced the angels had something to do with this. Now I don't know what. It says in chapter 32 that the angel did the killing. Here it says that they turned, them on, turned one against another. I don't know how they did that. But if it tells us that it happened as a result of prayer in chapter 32, I have to believe that it happened as a result of prayer in chapter 20 as well. But notice it wasn't just prayer alone. In chapter 20, it's prayer and they began to sing and to praise. Now this is exactly the same thing that happens in Acts chapter 16. It says that Paul and Silas are thrown into jail and at midnight, verse 25, at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. And this earthquake is not a citywide earthquake. It doesn't destroy houses and, and buildings and businesses and so forth. It shakes the prison so that everybody's doors, prison doors fall, opens up. Everybody's chains fall off their hands. Everybody's stocks uh, that are holding their feet bound fall off. Everybody is freed, but everybody is there. Now, the Bible doesn't say so, but I can't help to think that an angel had something to do with that. If angels had something to do with the walls of Jericho falling down, why wouldn't the angels have something to do with the earthquake in the prison? And they did the same thing that these guys did in Second Chronicles chapter 20. They prayed and sang praises to God. Now, here's the reason why I say that. There are several different ways that you can speak God's word. One is by saying, the other is just by obeying it. Not saying a word, just doing what the Bible says. Another, you, another way you can put your angels to work is by commissioning them with the word of God, sending them forth to bring it to pass. Another way that we see you can put the, word, put the angels to work is by praying the word of God. And then another way you can speak God's word, which would be putting the angels to work too, is to sing and to praise God according to his word. Now, I'm going to take a few minutes here. I know I'm out of time, but I'm going to take a few minutes here and finish this up, okay? I, well, I want you to see something. I want you to turn with me first over to Colossians chapter 3. I've had something in my heart that, uh, well, I believe God's been dealing with me for some time. You judge it for yourself. I'm not going to say, thus saith the Lord. I'll let you decide for yourself. But I believe that God's been dealing with me about something for a long time recently. And that has to do with worship. This is my opinion. This is not what God has told me, but this is my opinion. I think one of the greatest attacks, successful attacks the enemy has ever waged against the church is changing our music to where it's unscriptural. Because remember the story of the angel. 
The instruction of the angel is, if you do what the word of God says, you put him to work. If you provoke him, meaning speaking against God's word, he folds his hands. So if the church is singing an unscriptural song, what does that do where the angels are concerned? They fold their hands and step back. Which may be another reason or another aspect, another manner in which the church is showing or enforcing their weakness and their lack of victory. And so much of the church world is trying to sing songs based on what they sound like instead of what they say. Folks, can I show you what the Bible talks about in the New Testament about worship? This is really important. Colossians chapter 3. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, if we just stop right there, if the angels are hearkening under the voice of his word, that means if the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, you're in a position to speak and put the angels to work. Right? I mean, if we're just talking angels and nothing else, here's a means whereby you can get supernatural, divine help, strong help for the things that Jesus purchased for you to become a reality in your life. Right? Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How do we do that? In all wisdom, what's going to, what's going to show that forth? Teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says in verse 18, or verse 17, it says, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. So he must be talking about the will of God then, right? What is the will of God? Verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The word be filled or phrase be filled is a, a play on words that literally means be being filled. In other words, be constantly filling yourself with the Holy Spirit. He's not talking about just having been baptized in the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. He's saying keep it fresh, keep it new, stay full. How do you do that? That sounds good, but how do you do that? We see examples of that throughout the, the uh, book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 says they were all filled. Talking to 120, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Acts chapter 3, or I'm sorry, Acts chapter 4, where they began to pray. They had been threatened because the man at the beautiful gate was healed. It says they prayed and said, now, Lord, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that we may speak your word by stretching forth your hands to heal. And that signs and wonders may be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. It says, and the place where they prayed was shaken to, uh, shaken. I think an angel had something to do with that. They prayed, something happened. Maybe an angel had something to do with that. And then it says, and they were all filled with the Spirit. Well, wait a minute. I thought they were filled with the Spirit in chapter 2. They were. Now they're be being filled. They've got a new infilling. Folks, there is one experience of being baptized in the Holy Ghost, but there are multiple infillings. You can keep it new. How do we keep it new? Verse 19, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Speaks of some other things too, but I want you to see that. I want you to see the psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He's writing to the Gentiles, folks. They don't have the book of Psalms. That belongs to the Jews. If they had the Psalms written before them, they wouldn't care. It's not their songbooks. So when he says psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, what's he talking about? He's talking about stuff that you get through fellowship with the Lord. Let me show you what we've done with music, Christian music. 
Christians, in order to, well, I, want, I want to be kind about this. I, I, I could really get on my own little soapbox about this, but I, I, want, to, I want this to come across in the right spirit. Uh, how do I do that, Lord? <laughs> um, okay, here's how I do it. Thank you, Lord. Spiritual songs come from your heart, meaning come from your spirit. That's the only place they come from. You can't think something up and it be a spiritual song. Now, you can think something up and it can be scriptural. But a spiritual song is something that comes from the Holy Spirit imparted to your spirit. And that's one of the things that Paul says about New Testament worship. Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. A psalm is a spiritual song that's, that's uh, more like a poem or an ode than it is a, with a, a musical background, a musical uh, I'm not a musical guy. What's it called? A um, Melody. A psalm is just a song without a melody. That's all. What's a hymn? A hymn is a song that's a little bit more formal. A spiritual song is just something that's imparted by the Holy Ghost. But all three of these are given by the Holy Ghost. And there's only one way they come. You can't get a spiritual psalm, hymn, hymn or spiritual song unless your spirit is in fellowship or communion with God. Now, folks, I'm going to make a distinction here that Jesus made. Jesus talked about, to his, he said to those that believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed. Jesus made a distinction between believers and disciples. This is John chapter 8. If you, he said to the believers, to those that believed in him, I think it's verse 31. He said, if you continue in my word, if a believer means a Christian continues in the word of God, then they can become a disciple. Disciples are doers of the word. Now, there's only two ways you can fellowship with God. One is through his word and the other is by, through prayer. Specifically, praying in the Holy Ghost. Because if you're not praying in the Holy Ghost, meaning praying in other tongues, you run out of things to pray for in a hurry. Your spirit is designed to be filled with God. And if you're just praying according to what you think and what you can imagine and what you can understand, you run out quick. No matter how much you love God... No matter how saved you are, no matter how whatever, it takes the infilling of the Holy Ghost to, to maintain a communion and a fellowship with the Holy Ghost or fellowship with God through the Holy Ghost. And that's where spiritual songs come from. Now, what have we done with, with Christian music? We've made a business out of it. They have their own Grammy Awards called the Dubs, the Dub Awards. Can I ask you a question? Why don't we have Academy Awards for preachers? Why don't we have best sermon of the year? Why don't we have best pastoral performance in a Sunday morning message? Seriously, folks, I know it sounds stupid, but why don't we? What's the difference? And so what are Christian musicians doing by and large? They're chasing the awards. They're chasing this thing where people will buy their music. It's become merchandised rather than something from the heart. And even people that are supposed to know better, even people that say they're living by the word, so often go with the sound of the song instead of what the song says. And you know what's funny about this? And this, is, this has always been the case. I don't know why it's the case, but it's always been the case as long as I've been pastoring the church, since we started the church. The people that don't get spiritual songs are always the ones to tell me how we ought to have certain music in the church. And I, I, I've, I've had to bite my tongue for 26 years saying, how do you know? 
Well, Pastor Mike, how can you tell who gets spiritual songs? They're the ones in fellowship and communion with God. It shows. It just shows. Same thing's true with prayer. You get a lot of people that will talk about prayer. The number of people that are willing to pray instead of talking about it is vastly smaller. Now, you can even get people to come to prayer meetings, and they'll sit there and they'll read their Bibles. Reading the Bible is great, but it doesn't take the place of prayer. They'll text on their phones. They'll do anything in the world except pray. Well, how's that supposed to help? Reading your Bible is good. Jesus says that's like eating. He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That means feeding on the word of God is like feeding your spirit. Well, what's like, what is the, the example for breathing? You don't just live by eating. Eating's not going to do you too good, uh, any good at all if you quit breathing, is it? You can have the biggest feast in front of you on the table. If you're not breathing, it's not going to help you. Well, what is the example of breathing? Prayer. And that's the only way you can fellowship with God. So, folks, there's all kinds of things that take place in music. What do we do? We hear prophetic worship. What is that? Seriously, what is that? Well, that's where we're singing the word. Oh, wow, you need a special star for that. Seriously, what is that? That's a title that somebody puts on their own music to try to get you to think better of them or either buy their songs. Now, folks, I'm not criticizing anybody. I'm just telling you how things are. I don't care if you accept it or not. It's up to you. But you can't deny that it's the way it works. Some years ago, there was worship warfare. Huh? What is that about? See, people put all kinds of names on it, put all kinds of things, because spiritual songs, fellowshipping with God, and giving out what you've got isn't good enough. Oh, no, we've got to be professional. Well, we should, be, we should give God our best. There's no question about that. We should be skillful in everything that we do and develop ourselves so that we can be even more skillful and grow and develop our skills as much as possible. But, folks, you can't merchandise the things of God. You lose the anointing if you do. And the kind of singing that opens prison doors isn't the Christian music of the day. The kind of singing that sets people free is the stuff you get because you're fellowshipping with God. It is not coincidental that Paul said, Paul, who experienced some of these things, is the example for us in some of these things. It's not a coincidence that he said, I speak with tongues more than the whole church at Corinth. Where do you think he got these spiritual songs that they sang in prison? They come from your heart through fellowship and communion with God. And it may not ever win an award. I've got hundreds of songs. And when I pray, they just start pouring out of me. There are certain scriptures that I get to that if I read the scripture, it is I have to bite my tongue. I have to swallow down a song that I've been given maybe 10 years ago. And I won't even think about it until I see that scripture and all of a sudden there it is. I wouldn't sing any of my songs for you. They're not for you. They're for me. And they're not going to win any awards and they're not even musically good. But they bring victory. Because it's something between me and the Holy Ghost that encourages me, that puts me on top, that puts angels to work, I believe. Because they're they're hearkening under the voice of his word. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? I'm not trying to put anybody down, folks. But we need to be smart enough to see what's going on around us. 
We really do. The Christian music of the day is the biggest angel killer there is. It just is. If, they're lit- if the Bible's true, if they're hearkening unto the voice of God's word, there's not much Christian music out there that puts them to work. But the other side is just as true, and that is most of the Christian music out there is provoking angels. Wouldn't that be something for somebody to win all kinds of dove awards and all kinds of uh, industry awards and stuff like that and get to heaven and find out their music provoked angels? What's going to count for more as far as eternity is concerned? And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. Something put God to work. It's not a stretch for me to think that the angels had something to do with it. Now, you can disagree, and you might be right. I don't know. But I know the worship put God to work in some form to set not only them free, but other people free as well. I wish we'd get back to spiritual songs. There have been certain times, a few times in the church, where spiritual songs have, um, I don't want to say driven, but I don't know what other, what other uh, have been a major part of a move of God. You know, one of the times that it was, was the Azusa Street Revival. Holy Ghost started pouring out, being poured out in Los Angeles on Azusa Street, little bitty place, little bitty place. If you've ever been up there where it was, dear Lord, I mean, it's like God poured himself out in a closet. But there were people that were hungry. And the number of people that got filled initially is not what we would think would be the way God would move and start a great movement that went worldwide. But in those days, for a while, there was no music. It was a backwoods type thing, folks. It was the other side of the tracks type operation. And there weren't very skillful uh, musicians. They didn't have any musical instruments. They're just singing from their heart. And boy, the Holy Ghost started moving. Miracles started taking place, but then it got organized and things changed. You you can organize God right out the door. What the Bible talks about New Testament worship is what you get from God in your own situation. Now, we can help other people. We can er encourage other people. And those that are that are musically inclined should be the best at the uh, should. Well, I don't know how I don't want to say it that way. Those that are musically inclined should be in position for God to use them. To speak out those spiritual songs they get so that it edifies everybody. You're not going to be too spiritually edified by my songs. The word will edify you, but not the music behind it. My range is about four notes, I'm told. There's not much you can do with a song with four notes. But it works for me because I'm just singing them for me. Do you understand what I'm saying? I hope you really do understand. I hope you get where I'm coming from. I'm not against anybody. I'm not down on anybody. But if we want to see God move, we're going to have to do things according to what the Bible says. So I believe, you judge it for yourself, I believe these three ways will put your angels to work. Speak the word, obey the word, and commission them to go forth. The second way, pray. You know, when you pray in the Holy Ghost, you're praying the divine will and purpose of God. That means you're praying apart from your understanding. There could be times where you're speaking in other tongues, telling angels what to do by the direction of the Holy Ghost. 
You ever thought about that? Third way is by worship. And any worship that speaks the word, the angels perk up their ears for. Amen. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the angels. Spirit servants sent forth to minister for us. Thank you, Father, that the angels hearken unto our voice. As we speak your word, they are commissioned to bring forth the blessings of Abraham into reality in our lives. Father, let us put a watch over our mouths, put a guard upon our lips, so that we only say what your word says, and that we only do what the word instructs us to do. Go, ministering spirits, and bring forth that which we believed for, healings, finances, blessings, houses, all those things that people are trusting for. Somebody's here, somebody here is trusting God for a house. When I said houses, I saw an angel fly. I saw something go like a shot, a blur across the sky. Thank you, Father, for bringing your word to pass on our behalf and the work of the angels that caused it to happen. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Well, like I said, next Wednesday night, we'll do a question and answer session, service. So if, uh, if you have any questions, write them down before you forget them. And if you can, get them to me before next week. And uh, may have to study up to get your answer. God bless you. Have a great week.